this is Paul Schneider today in the 114th edition of Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio. My special guest today is former high school football coach Scott Lego. Scott is currently the founder of Student Athlete Advocates based in Sale area. Scott, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Thank you. Great, great. Scott, I'm going to get back to you in a minute. My podcast is now on Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, Google, iTunes, Podbeam. And I encourage my listeners to go to sportsuntoldpodcast.com. Um, I encourage my listeners to click the like button, like button regarding my show and comment and uh, check out my show on the other out, on the outlets that uh, have been mentioned. Scott, let me get back to you. Uh, Scott Lego was once, I believe, a UW student assistant coach and legendary Don James. Is that correct? That is correct. Right. Scott um, is a Seattle O'Day High School graduate. He's worked as a coach at, at Seattle's Garfield High School from 2002 through 2005. He's worked at other high schools, including Shorewood, Edmonds, Woodway, Mount Lake Terrace, and O'Day. Um, Scott is the founder of Student Athlete Advocates based in the Seattle area, so that we're definitely going to talk about today. Scott has a company that helps uh, navigate um, student athletes and their parents on NCAA eligibility, recruiting, and the financial aid process. Uh, Scott is also the director of partnership development at, is it called ATAVUS, rugby style tackling? Do I have that right? It's, yes, it's called Atavus. And it's, it's, Atavus. It's, yeah, it was based out of Seattle. And what do you do at Atavus, Scott, exactly? Well, I uh, two, two parts. I'm sales for the Pacific Northwest, but mostly trying to create partnerships. So working presently with the Washington State Football Coach Association and trying to set up a partnership and being able to provide tackling, safety tackling rugby style, which is shoulder tackling, taking the head out of the game. Uh, Coach Carroll made it kind of famous at the Seahawks. They called it hawk tackling. And right. So we take it a little farther and, you know, we're down in Texas uh, doing, um, you know, we, we do all the certification for the state of Texas State High School Association. So we're pretty big. We're trying to go into Florida and California now. So and, uh, you know, trying to bring it into the Pacific Northwest, too. So b- bottom line, Paul, what we're really trying to do is keep the game, uh, you know, available to everybody because parents, moms specifically, aren't playing anymore when it comes to CTE and all that stuff. So they want to, you know, they want the safety of the game. So that's really what our, our goal is. So you're like a tackling instructor, basically, for football. Yeah, I do this. I actually do the sales part. I don't do the instructing, but we have a platform where you can go on, you can look at film, you can, we break down your film where we're basically, a, you know, analysis we can provide you the data uh, and all that kind of stuff and really what you're doing good and what you're doing bad and how we can help you make it better and give you the proper uh, drills and practice plans to make your, your, your tackling program better. Um, Great. Like said, we've, we've, seen, we've seen a decline in the state of California. They're down about 11% with tackle football. Uh, Great. That was pre-pandemic. And uh, Scott was also a Rainier Avenue radio um show host for about a year and uh he was scott was a colleague of mine at rainer Avenue radio station i still have an affiliation with but uh, again scott thank you for coming on the sports untold podcast also on rainer Avenue radio appreciate it appreciate it thanks for having me absolutely i think we'll have a good discussion my and my producer who's doing a good job for me is lucius tenebris lucius you still around i think he's still around yeah he's he's recording um well, Scott, I, I know you attended O'Day High School in Seattle, a well-known Seattle uh, Catholic boys high school right near the downtown area. I'd like you to share with us how you became interested in football coaching and just the whole kind of sports instruction 
business, I guess we can call it. It's been a big part of your life. Yeah. Well, um, so my choice of O'Day was pretty simple. My dad went to O'Day. So he gave me two choices. I go to O'Day or I go to O'Day. So I chose O'Day. <laughs> and so um, while I was there, I was under, uh, you know, we had some really good basketball teams. Johnny DeFranco, John Hale, uh, Jojo Buchanan is out of my class. Uh, so we basketball was pretty big. And O'Day was then at that time just starting to really get going in football. Um, and through my, co- uh, through my coaches that I had there and stuff like that, I started getting the bug. I really, to be honest with you, Paul, I started off with basketball. I coached CYO basketball for years. Uh, I just happened to, we moved recently and I, I found an old um, plaque that the parents had put together and uh, I had this team for five years and we went uh, 77 and 10 in five years. So, you know, basketball started kind of my love for the game. And then I got on with Coach Kohler at O'Day uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, Monty was really uh, an important piece to, you know, my wanting to learn more. Uh, I wasn't the, you know, the phenom high school athlete. I was, unfortunately, I was at O'Day when there was a lot of good football players there. Um, right. You know, and so, uh, but it just got the bug in me. And I, I, and I love giving back to kids. And that's important to me. And I think, it, you know, in today's world speci- specifically, um, you know, in the adjunct of kind of what I do, you know, this popular notion that your kid is kind of your ticket, blah, blah, blah. I think a lot of kids are getting shortchanged when it comes to coaching and they're not getting positive, good coaching anymore. And so that's kind of what drove me into the profession that I wanted to be, you know, talk, you know, coach with the right ideas. And, and that's just important to me. And so, um, you know, I've been on, I'm part of the Washington state football coalition, which is Mike uh, Colbris is starting up uh, trying to, you know, have a central voice for the football for the state of Washington to, to drive home a better culture than what we're providing right now for students and kids. Well, I want to talk more about your coaching and some of your philosophies on coaching in a couple minutes. Now, something, Scott, that, um, you know, we had a couple chats before I got you on my show. We got to know each other a little bit better. And um, you're, you're a Filipino-American heritage. And I've been in the Philippines. I was there back in 2008. So I've had some exposure to the uh, American Filipino community. I did get to the Philippines once. And I'd like to kind of get your take on... Um, Filipino Americans in sports. I was doing a little pre-show research and it's interesting. There's actually quite a few American athletes that are of Filipino descent, including Tim Lincecum, um, mm-hmm. Roman Gabriel, the famous quarterback, mm-hmm. Eric Sprolstra, the, the prominent NBA coach. Um, do, do you kind of see it as maybe there's kind of an underrated presence of Filipino Americans involved in American sports? Absolutely. Actually, my aunt who runs a program called Fonz, the Filipino American mm-hmm. Historical Society, Dorothy right. Cardo. Um, she, you know, she. That's what they do. They highlight the, the world that we're in. And you're absolutely right. There's we don't we don't do enough of talking about the guys that are actually in it. Even for me, right. as a, I was one of the I'm one of the few Filipino coaches, high school coaches in the city of Seattle. Even though there's some really good basketball coaches, some good guys, Fred Sato that was at Queen Anne for years, and um, you know a lot of guys that are out there. But my point is that we really wasn't a spotlight onto it. And I think that's what we need to do a better job of putting a spotlight under these, you know, coaches that are out there, Spolstra and all those guys. But yeah, it's, uh, um, it's not very well known to be quite frank and honest with you. And we need to do a better job of that. My uncle, Fred Cordova, uh, Dorothy's husband, late husband, you know, he was one of the first ones told me about Roman Gabriel. I would have never known. Um, Neither did I. Yeah. So it's, uh, I think it's important that we, 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 we do that. And I, and I even, you know, um, 
um, Coach Matsusumo uh, from uh, Lincoln High School, which is down in uh, Tacoma, is a great story. They've done him on ESPN. They've done a feature of him, and he's Japanese. And we talked about it, you know, about not having real role models for us as in the profession. There's the Black Coaches Association. There's the College Football Coaches Association. But there's really not an association for, uh, you know, those coaches. But, you know, there's people like Dave Belmonte, who's an assistant coach down at Rainier Beach High School, who's Filipino. Uh, there's a lot of guys that are out there that need to be recognized for what they've done and what their their contributions to the city of Seattle and to, to sports in general. I so like I it because there really is a neat heritage of Filipino American uh, athletes. Being of a Jewish background myself, you know, there's sort of a stereotype. There's not a lot of Jewish athletes. Now, there's not tons, but there's more than people realize. So I think that there there's some um, you know ethnic groups in America that have had a a really significant sports presence that sometimes isn't discussed as much. So I, I wanted to hit on that subject with you. So. Appreciate you bringing it up. Absolutely. This is Paul Schneiderman, host of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio on the 114th edition with Scott Lego, who's been a football coach and now works as the founder of Student Athlete Advocates. I encourage my listeners to like, comment, and subscribe and go to sportsuntoldpodcast.com. Scott, you worked with the great late Don James, famous football coach, and you had you were a student assistant coach for Don. And I've had quite a few people on my show who played and worked with Don James, Jimmy Rogers, Skip Hall, Mark Pattison, Greg Lewis, the list goes on. Don James, his name seems to come from my show almost more than any other person's name. Um, what did you learn from, from the late, great Don James about coaching and just about life in general? Time, time management being number one, uh, you know. What was that? Time management being number one. Coach James had a philosophy and my wife doesn't always adhere to it. Uh, but if you're 15 minutes early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, you're really late. And I don't know if uh, Coach Hall uh, ever told the story, but he tells a great story about he and um, Ray Dorr were uh, literally, their car had pr problems and they were coming into the parking lot of the thing. And Coach James was behind them and he honked because he was in their way. And then he, um, the, you know, Coach Hall gets out of the car and he pushes the car and puts it in the parking spot. And then, so they're late to the meeting and coach James clearly saw them having these car problems. And uh, they sit down in their staff meeting coming in late and coach says, you're late. And they're like, well, coach, you suck. And he says, you're late. I mean, that's just the way it was. So it, it was impressed on me immediately. Um, I never heard of Franklin planners. That's the first thing you get when you used to work for coach James still have a planner today that I use that I work from. And so uh, it's, that's number one time management, how we handle this. Um, attention to detail was another one. Uh, I tell a great story that I really appreciated about him. You know, he told us to clean up the office and this was 10 months before he resigned. So this is, you know, this is last like literally 20 days that he was with the program. So clean up the, you know, our, our war room. And we said, okay, so we all cleaned it up and everything, got it all done. And then it was uh, first day of practice and we get there at, you know, six o'clock cause we got to make coffee and get everything ready and, you know, turn the lights on and have it all ready to go. And we come in and turn on the lights and every board in the room is full of practice plans. So he had been there at probably three in the morning, writing all these practice plans. When we left, it was all cleaned. Everything was done. And it just set the tone immediately when you walked in and you're just like, oh, this is different. This is different how he does things. And that's how he sets the tone quickly Like he was here way before any assistant coach was. And this is how we're going to go into our season. I sadly, you know, he re resigned when I was there. Um, and so that was frustrating because I didn't have a chance to work with him during the season and get to know him. 
during the spring and stuff like that. You had to be on your toes. He was a DB coach. I was working with DBs at the time. I had Lawyer Malloy in that group. Who was I was coaching. Great player. And, yeah, and if you were, uh, if he asked you a question when you were on the field, you better know the answer because if you didn't, you, I mean, he wouldn't let you coach. So you had to know your staff. You had to know your P's and your Q's. So then I was under Coach Lambright for two years. Um, uh, interesting, you know, di- difference in you know how they coached and how they went approach things. Uh, it was fun to be. I, I was unfortunately in the probation years. So I got to go to no bowl games. So I literally did for the learning and the loving. And um, I was, but I was on the staff of uh, the Whammy in Miami. So that was really kind of the epitome of my career because it was such a, an incredible game. Number one, when you kind of go back and do the research, you know, people like Ray Lewis and Ed Reed and all those guys were playing for Miami and we beat them at their place and their 58 game win streak. And um, if you, the old orange bowl, uh, everything about it. There was, it was an, an incredible, incredible part of game. It was my bowl game, basically. But uh, that was a Brent, pinnacle win. Yeah. And I remember those two probation years quite well. Did you like working with coach Lambright too? I did, you know, actually coach Lambright was, you know, I have to give him a lot of credit. He was the one that actually brought me in. He knew me from my high school coaching career. Uh, I was thinking about going to the college route. Um, so I was with him. He was one that brought me in. Uh, this is, you know, when they're in the, the, the height of the, you know, you know, the defense that they were running. Uh, so they were really, really good and really sought. My first day at practice, um, uh, my first day in the office, they told me to go into the uh, war room and I walk in and there must have been, and I just recently crossed paths because my stepson is a coach at, was a coach at Penn State. Brent Pry, who's now the head coach at Virginia Tech, he was actually in that room when I walked in. Uh, so we got a good laugh about that, you know, some 30 years later. Uh, but I walked in and there's probably the top 50 defensive coordinators and their assistants in the country. And Lambright was giving them a clinic uh, to talk about his defense and things like that. Now, I will say this as laughingly as I would say this, the defense was really good. But that number 90 called Etman, he really made that defense really, really good. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. so we can we can X and we can O all day long but you better be able to put a number 90 right there and then say, okay, now we can run this defense to the, to the max to what we want to do. And, you know, the great players, Hoffman and Clifford and all the guys that they had. So it was, uh, it's a little bit of the X's and O's, but it's a lot about the Jimmy's and the Joe's as we like to say in the profession. So, you know, we can, uh, we can chalk it up all we want, but you better have the players to make it happen. I like that. The Jimmy's and the Joe's never heard that, that line before. That's funny. Scott, you know, um, when you, co- when you coach high school football, I want to ask you if you implemented some of coach Don James's one of Don James's philosophies. One thing I've heard from quite a few people at Don James is one of his philosophies was part of my job is to coach the coaches, to coach the players. He had sort of a CEO perspective. Did you implement that perspective when you were, were a high school coach? Uh, you, you, you want to use the word blueprint, exactly what I do, exactly what I did. And I think that's the most important thing I took away from it. And, you know, as I talk to young coaches today, you know, about implementing a program really is that has to be the blueprint. Um, it's hard. It is hard. You know, the, the funny thing about it, Paul, be quite frank and honest with you, when you're a young assistant and you want to be the head coach and you want to do the, you know, that's all the fun things you want to do. And then you rally, you get the job and then you find out Monday through Thursday, you're uh, scheduling the buses, making sure the grades are right, making sure you're okay with your athletic director, dealing with any of the parent issues, all those other things, getting kids this class, all that good stuff. And oh, for those two hours on Friday night, that's when you get the coach. So, gotcha. so it really is the other end of the stick that I think that people, you know, forget, to, you know, what, what it's really about. And so 
that's, you know, it's, it's hard to do that. It's hard to relinquish, you know, because sometimes you, uh, you know, we all, you know, we got our egos, we're coaches, we think we know what's best. And sure. so to trust your coaches, but that regards the philosophy of what Coach James did. I mean, he just, you know, what we said in the staff room, what we said in the meetings and private and things like that, he was very clear what he wanted and what we did. And so, um, you know, you just had to do it and you had to go about it. And then all the other things, being on time, and time management. I used, I, I'm a, you know, like I said, coach high school football for years. And I used to just, just make me so mad when I'd hear a coach, one more play, one more play. And then we'd be out there for three and a half hours, three hours and 20 minutes. I believe in Coach James' thing. We, we practiced two hours and 25 minutes. Because I told the kids at Garfield specifically when I was the head coach, it was an, you know, becoming a very academic school. And so I had a lot of kids that were really smart and went to really good schools and scripts and, you know, Clint, I mean, you know, Colgate and all these great schools. And I told them, I said, we're going to have you on practice two hours, 25 minutes. And my coaches would get mad. Well, I need more. No, no, no. You don't need more time. You need to be more organized and ready to go. When you guys are, you know, having your, you know, fun talk and all that good stuff, I'm over there getting my bags ready. And so when the linebackers know, when the drill grows and we're going and we're start. And so you have to, you have to show the example how to coach that thing. And so I think that's important, like, again, to my point about my original thing about Coach James, about time management is really important to teach your coaches those things. And hopefully those things can, you know, parlay, because I don't think kids need to be out there, drag them three out, you know, we're not from the Paul Bear Bryant era, you know, just practice until they're, you know, can't barely walk off the field. So it's a difference in philosophy and things like that. But I think it's important that the kids realize that you have a two-way go. We're going to keep you two hours, 25 minutes. I expect you to really work hard in those two hours and 25 minutes. And then after that, you're ready. You can go home and you can study. You can do the things you need to do. Yeah. I got to keep in mind. These are kids you're dealing with too. It's not, it's not the pro leagues, Scott. Um, you brought something up and not to digress into my own stuff too much, but you'll probably relate to this. It's a very loose analogy. Um, you know, when you're, when I'm attending, when a lot of law school students are in law school, they think they're going to spend all the time, you know, briefing these, these fascinating cases and going to the Supreme Court, making these great arguments and trying tons of cases. Believe me, Scott, a lot of my day is just trying to make sure the trains run on time. A lot of my day is administrative stuff, making sure that there, nothing blows up. So I, I, uh, I think, I think a lot of people take certain positions. We expect a lot of, uh, excitement and, you know, a certain level of, uh, gravitas. And you kind of realize that, you know, that's, can be part of it but there's a lot of administrative stuff that goes on with all sorts of positions including high school coaching so uh, yeah so um what was your favorite high school coaching experience i know you coached at garfield from 2002 to 2005 a well-known seattle inner city high school what was your uh, favorite school you coached at you know each one is unique in it to themselves and to be honest Paul, i didn't even add it in there i actually was named the head football coach at prairie high school down in vancouver and i was a um it was a weird summer for me I got the job, and um, right before I got it, I had just taken down 12 18-year-olds down to Las Vegas for a basketball AAU tournament. I was the athletic director at CAYA, and um, uh, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And so I had to turn down the job because I, you know, just because of the, of the portability of my insurance. <clears throat> it wasn't to do with the diabetes and like that, that. My wife works in the healthcare business. She says, unless we know you have that, we can't do it because if you don't, we're in trouble because, you know, as anybody knows in the type one diabetic world, it's not cheap. And so it would have been, you know, a, 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 not a fun thing to deal with. So having said that, um, you know, they're all special, you know, obviously Garfield being probably the most dear to my heart because I was the head coach, uh, you know, obviously being at O'Day was probably the most 
you know, fun because we won so much and we were winning and we had some really good programs. I've coached Demetrius DuBose, um, you know, and then that I knew group, Demetrius, great guy. He yeah, was a great guy. Yeah. And five, you know, four other of his cousins that, you know, played. There was a fun year and a great group of kids. So, you know, every, every like I said, every school is a little bit different, you know. Um, Edmonds Woodway is, uh, you know, on the richer side of Aurora and Mount Lake Terrace is on the junkyard side of Aurora. So, um, you know, in, so there's, there's just different kids. And so, but, you know, I, I loved, uh, you know, obviously competing in the inner city. The tough part of Garfield, to be quite frank and honest with you, is that we were in the Kinko League. Um, you know, so I was going against the Bothells, the Skylines, and things like that. And when your resources don't even get one-tenth of what those have, it's just not very fun to deal with. And uh, that, that made it hard. And, and uh, I, you know, I even proposed, you know, even saying, can we make three mini leagues in the Kinko League? <clears throat> that way we could have the city league. So Ballard, Roosevelt, Franklin, and Garfield could play for a half game and please play for a game. And we were never even considered until the, you know, that really good Ballard team with Bankhead and those kids, uh, Dietrichs and those guys were playing. And they made it to the state championship. So it was uh, just that was kind of the bittersweet part of it. Good to be, you know, head coach, but boy, the, you know, coaching that Kinko, which I call the, the Southeast Conference of Washington State High School Football, it's a, that's a tough league, uh, especially when you don't have the resources, you know, but that, that those schools do. Um, I wanted to ask things, Scott, or get your take on this about the Seattle Football Conference. I don't follow the details that much. I mean, I did it more when I attended Roosevelt years ago, but. You know, Seattle has Memorial Stadium where all the Seattle-based schools, I believe, play at Memorial. Um, would it be possible to ever set up a system where the, where the, the schools could have their own stadiums, so they could play at their own schools, or is, this, is there just a land issue with that? Well, there is a little bit of a land issue for one specific school, Lincoln being it right now, which was kind of a frustration for me. So I, I'm also on a, a Seattle Parks and Recreation Board, uh, Seattle Sports Advisory um, board and you know so we talk about a lot of these issues like a lot of people may not know this but uh june 1st both ingram and rainer beach are going to be down uh rainer beach for a couple years and uh ingram for the summer so it's going to be a real you know push on the fields having said that um you know there's probably needed you know for get those things up and running i it was that would have been my goal to be quite frank and honest with you paul when i was at garfield it was frustrating because you had to get a you had to get i'm at home quote unquote, I had to get a, I had to get a bus. I have to go through downtown Seattle traffic on a Friday night at five. Um, you have all these issues that you got to deal with. And, you know, you feel like you're playing at home. You feel like you're playing on the lights at Memorial, but truly to be honest with you, it doesn't make it feasible. And so I brought it up to the athletic director and she's, you know, that time as a woman and she says, well, we don't have stands. And I said, well, have you been to one of our games? I mean, it's not like we have 900,000 people at our game. We, we have a very small and if at the end of the day, we have to go get stands to help it out. That's a, that's a problem that I think I can deal with. Uh, you know, but I played, you know, think about that, but Rainer beach, Roosevelt, those other schools, I think we could do it. I just think we have to make a real conservative effort. And even, I mean, we we're dealing with a good asset when you think about Memorial stadium. Sure. And that, that's my problem with, and this is not a shot at Pat McCarthy, Tara Davis, or anybody that's down there, AJ Brooks. That's, this is not it. But I think sometimes you need to have a vision, vision, uh, a business vision of the whole deal. Could we turn this thing into mixed use and put stores and do those things and parking lots and things like that? Maybe make a reduced, say, I mean, I'm, you and I are kind of in the same era. We've seen the pictures from the 60s and 70s of Memorial Stadium when they had the old turkey games. I mean, that place was packed. 
But you go down to a high school game, this now it's not a fact. And we just have more things to do than we've ever had in, in our lives. So having said that, that would be the way I would look at it if they were going to keep Memorial Stadium. That's to me is the right way to do it. Having said that, I really would, would like them to push to having, you know, the, the, the neighborhood games. Then um, there's been pushback from the local community, obviously Roosevelt being one, sometimes in the Ingram, Franklin the communities, the Friday night lights, the lights being the issue. Um, community saying, I don't want those lights and there's, you know, for my neighborhood and all that. I think we can get past those things. I'm really talking about four or five, maybe games a year. So you're talking about four experiences out of 52 weeks that you'd have to deal with a little bit of lights. So I think we can get through some of those issues, but uh, I think that would be the better vision because we got, you know, again, it's, it's all those cost things. It cost me to get a bus. I mean, we never made money. So to give you a good example, in the Kinko league, when you play at Pop Keeney out of Bothell, Woodenville, Bothell, and Inglemore, and now probably, uh, I'm not sure about the, the new school out there, but uh, those three for specifically, when they played at their state, when they played Pop Keeney, they do everything. The parents run the tickets, they do the concession stand, everything, and they keep all that money. Well, if you do the math when you watch one of those games, there's 5,000, 8,000 people at some of those games times $7 a ticket on average. You add it up, they make $30,000 free games. That's 90,000. My, my budget at, at Garfield, when I was working there, Paul, my first year, I got, I got a, an extra 1,500, I had 2,500 bucks. Every other year was a thousand dollars. I mean, you just can't compete. I mean, you can, no, you're, it's a lot of money. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. you can't, you know, so I look for the solution, like how can we get to improve these things and look at some of those ideas and I, I, you know, without being too political here and, and trying to, you know, you know, be a jerk. But I mean, you know, we both know one thing, Paul, you and I, there's a little bit of money in this town. We got the first, the third richest guys in the world to live here. And I'm not saying that they should pay for it, but could we could be creative and give you a good example, Jeff Rakes, who's, uh, you know, runs the Rakes Foundation was one of the Microsoft, you know, original guys ran the Gates Foundation. Um, he's the owner of Huddle, which is the largest platform for all kids to use to exchange film and coaches to exchange film. And, you know, could Jeff sit down and say, we call it Huddle Stadium. I don't care what we call it. Give them all the rights. I don't really care, but help us, you know, figure out the problem, solve the problem. Uh, you know, I you think that those are the ways that we could be creative and make some things happen. And that's me. I'm just an entrepreneurial part of my life. I, I lead, I think, outside the box a little bit. But I think we could solve the problem if we really put our, our minds to it. We have great people. I mean, Karen Bryant, who used to be, you know, the Storm CEO, she was the CEO of, of Atavis. She's actually she's actually Filipino. She's she and I are kind of like cousins. So we know each other. Well, I mean, a brilliant woman. I mean, use her background, use those things. I mean, there's people out here that would help if we really thoughtfully sat down and, and, and addressed these issues. Well, you bring up a great point. I mean, a city as wealthy as Seattle, uh, a high school football team should have more than a thousand dollars to to spend on on basic equipment and things. I mean, I, I mean, you bring that up, it's it's kind of revolting. And so, I you're not. I think your points are, are valid. Uh, Paul Schneiderman hosts the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainier Avenue Radio, with uh, Scott Lego, former high school coach, and also uh, Scott is, I believe, the. Uh, hope I'm stating this right. The chair of student athlete advocates. Do I have that, or the CEO? Um, or? A founder. Founder, 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 great. Well, I want to talk to you now, Scott, about some of the work you do at Student Athlete Advocates. And I think I think parents and kids and faculty, people who are listening, will learn more about that whole process, the whole maze of um, 
getting a student a college scholarship and, and that whole process. And I, I just kind of like you describe, take a minute or two, and, and just describe a common consulting session you'll have with a parent and student athlete about the NCAA process, the recruiting side, the financial aid side. What's a typical, break it down in a minute or two, what's a typical uh, uh, consultation to deal with with those types of issues? Well, I just had one yesterday, to be quite frank and with, with the athletic director, <clears throat> excuse me, from Cleveland High School. And we were talking, I was just, it wasn't with the parents, it was just with the student athlete, but he doesn't, he didn't understand it. So when you really go back to the old, old days of the NCAA, they used to call it the um, uh, clearinghouse. It's now called the eligibility center. Um, it's the NCAA's way of making sure the grades that you received are in accordance of what the NCAA standard is. So to be quite frank and honest, I, well, most people don't know. Like when I sit down with the parents, I explain to them. I that's called know your numbers. It's kind of my presentation. I mean, there's a million kids every year that enter the clearinghouse. From that, two percent are going to be the elite kids that are just elite and they're physically gifted and they're just that they have the grades. They have the whole package. I don't. I, I don't even think about talking to those guys. There's only seven percent of those million kids that are going to get a scholarship. Any right, of, right, anything. And I'm talking partial to full. And so that's really the 5% I'm talking to and explaining how the process works. And now the numbers. And so I just go through it and I say, so number one, are you a recruitable athlete, student athlete eligible wise? Have you passed the 16 core classes? So give you a good example. A lot of parents say to me, well, my kid's got a 3.3 GPA. Well, he does. They, he or she does. So we do that. And then we take away the 16 core classes, which are English, math, science and some different courses that your school specific offers, right? Well, all of a sudden I take away the PE, the car class and do these things. And that 3.3 all of a sudden starts stripping down and we're down, we're barely, barely above 2.4, which is the GPA you need now. And so then all of a sudden the light bulb comes on in their head and it's like, okay, so again, and again, it's about knowing the numbers. The average in the country, Paul, is about 582 to one counselor ratio to students in the country in the state of California it could be a, about a thousand to one. So you're wow. really sitting down and seeing a counselor are very, very low. And that counselor knowing and really knowing and understanding the NCA process is really low. How I actually started student athlete advocates was when I was at Garfield, we were going through the gentrification. Things were changing at Garfield. It was becoming a very academic school. And like I told you, my beginning class, really smart, good kids. My second class, I had a kid that got to uh, Eastern Washington. Uh, but he was going to be a prop 48 at that time, which is an academic redshirt, which is now the new standard. Um, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have made it. He would have been what they call the non-qualifier. And he probably wouldn't even got to Eastern Washington, but he ends up playing in the semifinal games against Appalachian state. Um, you know, great story, but I want you to see the counselors at Garfield and I love them to death. They're good people. This is not a shot at counselors. They're just plates are really, really full. And I started talking to the eligibility center and the sliding scale and all the lingo that you know it happens in the process and they had no clue what i was talking about and that's when the bell went off um and full for full, full transparency my stepson who started off at western oregon is now a, you know, the special teams coordinator at oregon he tells me a lot of the horror stories and the inside stuff and he always was trying he says these kids need to have a good counselor in their school to help them through the process because once they hand the transcript over to them it's not like the coach just says oh you look good let's go they have to hand them over to their compliance department their their missions and they have to look at it and they go well he's got like 72 f's that he can't come in here so they're they're, they're going to get stopped either which way it just doesn't say hey you gave me a transcript i'm good to go 
So that's the first part. Then we really talk about, are you recruitable? I mean, so the kid yesterday had a good example, Cleveland kid, nice kid. I think he's, he's got a good chance of maybe going D3 because he's academic. Um, all the positive things, but he's six foot one. I said, do you know how many six foot one guards there are in the, in the country? There are a dime a dozen. So what's going to differentiate yourself? What are you really good at? Can you highlight that on your game film? Can you get the attention of the coach? And I said, you have to understand, a coach gets a 1,000 of these in the season, at least a 1,000, if not more. And they've got two minutes to make a decision off of your film to say yes or not worth my time to, to recruit. So that's number two, three, two of the thing. And the third process is the financial aid. You know, a lot of people get, you know, unfortunately, you know, sort of like they talk about when you get to run the law firm and when you get to be the head coach. Right. A lot of, a lot of people hear the word scholarship. And when you're talking about scholarship at a D2 Central Washington, it's not a scholarship. It's a, it's a piece of cake. And they slice thin pieces, right? Well, who, right. Do you think it's, who do you think it's the biggest chunk? The guy named quarterback. He gets a big chunk. The left guard, he gets a really thin slice. And so how are you going to financially be able to pay for the rest of the school? And, you know, I'll give you a good example of Garfield. When I had a kid that came to me, he wanted to transfer from Cleveland to Garfield. Great kid. Uh, but he said to me, he goes, Coach, I, I'm, I'm struggling with this transfer. At Cleveland, I'm a, I'm a Gates Foundation kid, and I have a free scholarship after I get into college. I looked at him literally, Paul. And at that time, we had 60-cent Metro bus tickets we could give to the kids so they could take a free bus. I reached into my desk, pulled out a 60-cent Metro thing, handed it to him. I said, you're going back to Cleveland. In my good conscience, I could never take you, knowing you have a full ride from the Gates Foundation, and you're going to come to Garfield for me. We're not doing this. Here you go. And I, and I just told them that we're not, we're not going to do this. So I think that, you know, unfortunately in the world that we live now, especially with NIL and transfer portal, um, you know, these, a lot of these kids are told the, not the truth. And so to bring it full circle to you now, what really what kids don't understand, especially with this transfer portal is think about it as you're a college coach, you can look at a kid's game film. So let's just say you're uh, Portland state or you're, uh, you're, you're Oregon. And, and all of a sudden you can, uh, find a really good maybe kid that was got not recruited enough and was good enough to play at Portland State and all of a sudden he's kill, killing it at that level and you can give him a scholarship versus a kid that comes out of Gresham High School out of Oregon well which one are you going to take I see the game film against college players and I'm taking a guess for the high school player the problem with that is uh to be quite frank and honest with you is they're going to take the they're going to take the proven commodity from the college level so my point is where we used to have 25 class 25 kid classes if you go go and do the math and see and look it up with yourself parents it's about 15 they're leaving about 10 so they can go into the transfer portal and figure out how to help out their roster so it's a huge issue that's coming out it's really pushing down on these high school kids the opportunities are less and less and a lot of kids and then if you go down that that trickle down that thing well i'll go juco well why does a college football why does a football why does a college coach need to go the juco route when they can just go into the transfer portal and get exactly the same thing without and knowing what's going to be able to play at that level. Again, you're dealing with the same question. If I go to the Juco, I don't know what I'm getting. It's not a proven commodity, but I can watch him play against division one athletes over this level. So it's a big problem, man. They, 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 these kids just got to understand the numbers. The numbers are against you as a high school student athlete now. And so you might, you might be good enough to play at the university of Washington, but reality is you might be at Eastern Washington because there just wasn't enough scholarships at Washington State and, and UW that were available.
and got a the- lot there, and I, I got some follow-up questions. A lot, a lot there. Um, Paul Schneider, again, host of Sports Untold podcast with um, the founder of Student Athlete Advocates, Scott Lego, and Scott has worked as a former high school coach. So I want to ask him, so say you're a top high school athlete getting recruited by 400 schools, like a top hoops player, a football player, that, that kid's definitely going to need help. There's a lot of stuff to navigate for a kid of that nature. But do you find the kids that need the most help are like the honorable mention baseball player fighting for a scholarship or the the, the second team all-conference hooper getting recruited by a few schools? Do you, I, I'm not saying the top kids don't need help, but do you find those kids like right on the scholarship bubble? Are they the kids that you find you the most help in this whole process? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to be honest with you, it's, 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 and it's about education and really understand how the process works. Like I just went through with you and talked about the numbers game, how it gets pushed down. Really. I mean, so give you a good example. I, I I've had this, these scenarios where a kid, you know, well, Washington state's going to bring me in late for a recruiting uh, visit for football. Uh, but I got a full ride to Eastern and I'm kind of looking, I'm like, uh, I would take that Eastern thing now. Eastern's not going to be mad at you if Washington State comes and says, hey, we got a scholarship, we're going to take you. That's, right. that, that's what you got to understand. That, those are the conversations you have to have with these parents. No, we're going to wait it out for Washington State. Okay, have fun with that. And then they hold out. Washington State doesn't offer them. And then you go back to run to Eastern. Eastern's like, well, we're full. We were full three weeks ago. We're done. We're, we don't have space. And so, again, um, you know, you and I are kind of from the same era. So I know you'll have a good chuckle when I say this, but, you know, when yeah. folks change. Coach James was there. We had one thing. We had a red shirt. Well, now there's a purple shirt, a blue shirt, a gray shirt. They make shirts up every year. And every shirt is different in how it affects you into the process, right? So, again, it's, it's all those things you have to navigate. So, and, you know, if my stepson was sitting in this, in this, in this conversation, he would tell you flat out, Paul, I, used to, I use this analogy a lot. You're buying carpet from carpet baggers. They can make it sound as good as you think right. it is. Right. But the reality is, and then all of a sudden, you know, when he was at Central, he would say, you have a scholarship to these parents and say, but you got to do this, this, you got to do the financial aid, you got to do the wooey, get, get all the stuff done. And the parent would call him, well, coach, you said he had a scholarship. I did. I told you we're going to give him 2000 bucks, but you got to come up with the rest. Did you do the financial aid form? Did you do this to do that? So another good example for the financial aid form, let's talk about the kid at, at uh, Cleveland. He has to fill out the financial aid form. There are no act. There is no athletic money at the division three level, but what parents don't understand is the reason they have to fill out the financial aid form as a lawyer, you would know this. And as an accountant, you would really know this that's incoming money. So it's used in the tax, you know, in your taxes and things like that. So in order for you to accept that money at that division three level, you have to fill out the FAFSA because it has to be part of the, the financial records of this deal. Right. Right. So those those are things that parents. Oh, no, I don't have to do that. No, you do. If you want to accept that money. So another good example I, I can use. I had a kid that uh, I got to Central Washington. Uh, he was late bloomer kind of kid. Um, he's a, um, and as I've already explained, I'm a type one diabetic. He's a type one diabetic. I get him a scholar. We get him, get him to Central Washington. Um, the mom calls me a month into training camp and she's crying. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I mean, I thought medical in my head, something went bad, a practice. She said, you know, Scott, she said, you know, we then the process went so fast that the, the, the academic side of Central couldn't catch up to the process. But uh, Christian was in the top one percentile at school academically. And I have a, a letter here that says he's going to get a 70000 a year scholarship for his academics. 
She goes, we don't need the athletic money anymore. I was like, I mean, that, that's the beauty of what I tried, you know, try to have happen and help these kids. And which is another thing, you know, you know, student athletes and parents out there, make sure your kids are ready to academically, right? Because that really could help right. you in the game. But my point is it's uh, it's it's a tough game. And you're right. I mean, those and, and, and let's be honest, I mean, marginalized kids are, you know, they're kind of left out there. And and the resources I explained how it works at Garfield for football. I mean, uh, you know, counselors Scott, are let, me, let me ask since Scott, um, you, you're, you have a lot of familiarity with like big time college football in particular. Um, do you work with kids that are, say, rowers or javelin players or do you work mostly with with kids that are fighting for the big scholarships in the bigger nope. sports like football basketball baseball i work with girls and boys and all those sports it's the same all those sports process. too it's all the same process straight across for all student athletes the process is the same how the recruitment is that's different so I'll give you a good example right. you know with title nine and you know 85 football scholarships the the track team at the university of washington has 19 women's scholarships and they only have um you know like nine running for the men's uh most people most parents don't know that the number is 11 and i, I don't know how the ncaa came up with this one but 11.7 um, uh, scholarships for baseball um i think you know you're a pretty smart guy i mean you need nine to play well, to some get, say that not, not everybody says that so well yeah. you you need nine to play and you get you, you guys <laughs> bullpen you know i mean your team is like 45 kids and you've got 11 scholarships well how do you think that works at the d1 level right They're, they're going to cut those up and beat those up. And they're going to, you know, you're going to get 30 cents and you're going to get 90. You're going to get $2 and 10 cents. Oh, you're the left-handed pitcher. You're going to get four bucks. I mean, that's how they do it. And so again, parents hear the word scholarship and it's not the same thing. So it's how you act your plan to make it, you know, so it's not hard on you. And it, you know, if we want to make it, if we're, if we're really trying to say the goal is to get your education, then how are you going to be able to do this? Because it's, it's hard. And, you know, like, like here we have small college football has really, really been pressed. We don't have, we only have two division two programs on American football programs on the West coast, central Washington in, in, um, in Western Oregon. So the Juco route, we have no Juco's in the state of Washington, Oregon, Montana, Idaho. The only ones are in California and Arizona. Well, we've done, I've done the math. It's about $25,000 to go down to California to do the Juco route. Do you just have 25,000 bucks? Right. A little money for families. Yeah. Do you have resources down there? If, I, I mean, I don't know what your college days were like, but I know what my college days were like. And I know student athletes, you know, there's a few days you open the cupboard and there's only one top ramen looking you back in the eyes and you had two weeks to eat. And you're like, right. So big I, issues there. A lot of equi equi equitable equity issues are Scott, you know, there's private college counselors around the country and it tends to be more the affluent that have access to private college counselors. Well, all these college counselors uh, a lot of them are former admissions officers at colleges. And they know people at colleges. A lot of these private college uh, counselors, you know, they know about the background of thousands of colleges around the country, literally. Have you been able to find some jewels for kids with college scholarships, like maybe at an obscure school in Missouri or a school in South Dakota or a school in Florida? Do you have, have you been able to sort of navigate around and find some I guess unique schools for kids to to play sports at with scholarships. Well, I can I can use one family, the Jordan family, who's um, actually the dad is a couple of years behind me at O'Day. He reached out to me. His kid was kicking at uh, uh, at O'Day at the time, so it's a kicker, right? Right. Again, looking at the whole package with everything, 
So I got him to uh, happen to know the head football coach at the time, South Dakota School of the Mines, top engineering school in the country, one of the one of the tops. Um, uh, and he um, so I get him there. He ends up breaking records, doing really good things like that. Uh, today, he's got an engineering job. He started off about making about $80,000 and he's making way more now. He's married, did the whole thing. Younger sister, good athlete, played at the um, Holy Names, soccer player, uh, wanted to continue her career. I got her to uh, Pacific Lutheran uh, P, uh, PLNU, Point Loma, and Nazarene University down in San Diego. And if you uh, parents, if you just want to have some fun, look up that school and where they get to play because they play on a cliff and it overlooks the ocean. Wow. I mean, Sounds most beautiful. Setting you've ever seen in your life. And, you know, Dan would send me pictures all the time and thanks buddy for getting my kids here. And then his baseball kid went the same thing, went to Edmonds community college. And then we got him to PL and U for baseball and he's playing there now. And his, again, his outfield is overlooking the ocean. So yeah, we do. That's it's really, really where our work is. To be honest with you, Paul, it's getting into small schools, getting into obscure places. We do all sports, any sports, and we just, you know, again, it's about education. And, and this is again, I, I think parents just need to understand this is not a shot at your counselors. If you have a great counselor in your school that's doing a great job with your kid, stay there, do those things. If you feel like you can't, I'm trying to. Tara Davis and I are trying to put together a program with Seattle Public Schools where I come in, talk to the counselors, work with them, and be a, a you know, as I like to say, a side plate to them to if I can help them out in this issues and stuff but it's a big issue it's it's out there and I, I don't know so Scott, you spend a lot of time then doing research on different colleges around the country and by the way yeah. when I said obscure I wasn't meaning obscure in general I meant more obscure people from the like say the Pacific Northwest that's what I meant about some of those those schools so I wasn't putting down the other colleges it just just you know well, geographically a little a little different maybe than, than our region that's what I meant you know well I think I think it's interesting Paul the NCA actually has kind of a cool app uh, where you can go on and you can, it's a map of shows where all, little pins of where all the schools are. Well, it's from the Midwest East. That's where most of the universities are. Right. And the left is really very, not many. And so it's, it's for us guys on the left coast, we're, we're, you know, we're upstairs. So get a good, good example of central Washington or Western Oregon would be a really good football team and play, have a great successful season. And they may not get invited to the playoffs because the NCA who pays for it at that point when they get to the playoffs, they look at a Nebraska Kearney playing Morningside College and they're 30 minutes apart from each other to get a bus ride or they can fly out Western Oregon or Central Washington and have to pay for the plane ride. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to go with the you know team that maybe was eight and four versus the team that was 10 and, and 11 and one just because it's, it comes down to demographics. It's easier for them to do. So again, it's learning all those things really seeing where the opportunities are understanding the process. And it's, I mean, I know, I know this is going to be a shock to you, Paul, but the, the NCA, they change their minds about every mm, 30 minutes. So I mean, they, they are, I mean, it's constant. The, the, the bar gets moved in that process all the time. Like to give you an example right now, uh, when the pandemic started, they got rid of the requirement for the SAT ACT. Now it's, I'm telling 23 kids I would take the ACT and uh, ACT for two reasons. We don't know what the NCAA is going to do. They're recommending they get rid of it, but that's not done for sure. But more importantly, if again, some of the obscure schools that I'm talking about and the smaller schools, they may make that a requirement still to get into their university. 
So you may still have to take the SAT, ACT. And for parents out there that really don't understand the process, the way that works, the way the NCA works, your higher your GPA, the lower your SAT, ACT score goes. So, so if you have a 4.0, you're you know golden kid, you literally can go into the ACT, SAT and just literally sign your name on the thing and walk out the door and you're going to be fine. If you're a 2.4, you got to get a number that's way out of the ballpark. And, and, and we both know, I mean, we know how the correlation works. Usually a 2.4 student isn't going to all of a sudden get a 1600 on the SAT. Or a 40 not, right, right. Oh, yeah, and, and, I'm not, and I'm not here to disparage the system. I'm just saying that doesn't mean that they're not academically smart enough to, to get into the university. And it shouldn't be used. But it doesn't make sense to me that, so the higher, you know, it just it's just frustrating. And so when people don't know that, and all of a sudden they got to, you know, hit these numbers, that gets to be an ugly situation. And again, I'm talking about your equity. How many of these inner city kids have access to SAT, ACT prep course to those, to those, to what you were talking about, those academic counselors now that are helping kids get into Yale and Harvard and all that kind of stuff. They don't have those, that kind of access to that kind of stuff. So again, it's, it's really understanding the system and how it works and what, things like that. I hope they get rid of it. I think it's going to happen. But right now, I wouldn't act on it like that's not going to happen. I mean, I, Scott, I, you have so many insights on this whole uh, college admissions process for, for student athletes. Scott, I want to ask you something. You know, there was a very well-known scandal that occurred a couple of years ago, the Operation Varsity Blue scandal that involved um, a situation of some wealthy parents that were basically bribing university officials to get their kids into, into some elite colleges. And there, part of the scandal involved some coaches who were wrongfully participating in designating an applicant as a recruit for a sports team and the person that the student the student had no like no rowing background for example just take a minute what were your general thoughts on that scandal um well the the, the first the first one paul you have a good laugh was i'm not charging enough uh <laughs> i was like he got how much uh, you know, so, uh, or my demographics aren't right. And that's really, to be honest with you, I mean, I can, I can laugh at it, but I'm never going to be that guy. I'm never, I, I mean, he specifically, Rick Singer's his name. He specifically located himself in this neighborhood that he knew were these people that were going to look for these things. And, you know, they, they called it the side door, uh, right. and all those things. I, you know, it's sad to me. It's sad to me that a kid can get into school and literally take up another kid's scholarship. Um, it's wrong. It's all those things, but, to be honest with you, it, it doesn't didn't surprise me. Uh, it's uh, it's shocking. It's sad. It's uh, really a you know. There's a great uh, podcast I listened to. It was Dan Lust that I listened to this morning. They're talking about the uh, the scandal right now that's coming out about the LSU basketball thing, and how all of a sudden it just went dead and quiet, and nobody talked about it. I have my theories on why it went dead and quiet, and why it's getting revived back up. Uh, but my point is that. Um, uh, you know, it's out there. People know it's out there. We've got to do something about it. Uh, I, I find it um, despicable, to be quite frank and honest with you, that in his sure. last years, um, and I know he's a past president of the University of Washington, but where has Emirate been in any of this stuff in the pandemic to this N the name, image, and likeness to the, uh, you know, transfer portal? It's not good for athletics. It's been, you know, they basically have made it the Wild West. And I, you know, Without making this a four-hour show, uh, we won't go down that that rabbit hole. Uh, maybe we can come back and talk about it another time. But it's it's not good, and then they need to put the, the clamps down it. And what really concerns me, to be quite frank, honestly, with you, Paul, is, you know, NCA literally has come out and said we want to see you know some uh, government you know insider over you know 
overreach into this. And I'm like, you don't want that. They don't know what to do. I mean, we're having a debate on. Scott, I got a real, I got a real practical question for you. This might be a naive question, but how, how could a coach pull that off? How could the Texas coach, whatever coach was involved, the tennis coach get paid, uh, get bribed a hundred grand to designate uh, a kid as a, as a tennis recruit. I mean, how could they pull that off? I, I'm just, I know that's a naive question, but, but it just strikes me like, couldn't somebody like within seconds do a check and say, no, this kid is not a, an elite tennis recruit. I don't know. I'm just kind of curious how they can even pull that off. I know it's anyhow. Well, what they, what, what he did, which, you know, in, 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 in retrospect to him, um, you know, you want to give consideration that he was genius, uh, which I wouldn't go that far with him personally, but the bottom line is what they did was they just went around the rules, Paul. And what they did is they said they gave a donation to the school. Well, we're, you know, if we want to really be nefarious and go back time, uh, anybody go to the University of Notre Dame right now, they can find the Eddie D. Bartolo um, Hall, right? Well, I bet you all, all the D. Bartolo kids got into Notre Dame pretty easily. Uh, sure. You know, we're in the door. So we know it's out there. We're done. He was smart. They all they went, they went through foundations, act like they were giving money that way. And that's how the money was funneled back to the coach. Um, and, you, you know, in the Stanford situation, that's why I didn't get as much time. He actually did give the money to the school. He didn't take the money. Um, so in, in that case, you know, you know, he, he did, probably did the right thing. But, you know, there was undue influence in the whole situation. And to be honest, you know, again, for the parents, it's, it's you know, know your numbers. Not every college coach is, you know, uh, you know, Kalen DeBoer and, you know, the coach over at Washington State, Dickert right now, making, you know, two highest paid state employees. Uh, the, the, the track coach isn't making as, as much. And so when the, those deals come out and they're offered to you, you may look at them a little bit differently. Not, you know, I'm not saying it's morally, ethically right, but, you know, when I, I would even argue this, like after I listened to that podcast this morning, I, I've always said this, how, how the shoe companies can be a part of a coach's compensation and not think that there's going to be problems. Please explain to me how that, 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 that's, that's a lot there interest, you know? And so, uh, you know, they want their, they want their stuff right in front and center. They're going to make sure it happens in one way or the other. So it's, Scott, I'm going to get a couple more questions in. Um, the NCAA is sometimes perceived as a heartless bureaucratic institution. Is that a fair characterization of the NCAA in your experience? Or is that a little exaggerated? Uh, I, no, I, I would, I would say yes. Um, you know, and, and, and I don't want to get political here by any stretch. Paul, you can't. My show tits on politics. Well, you know, I mean, we're watching one of the probably one of the greatest heroes in my lifetime watching him in Zelensky and what he's doing with Ukraine and showing true leadership and doing the things that he's, you know, some of the things he's said and done. And again, I go back to the Emirate. I've literally not seen this guy in two years. I mean, he had no influence in any of the decisions for the leagues to say, yes, we're going to play. Now we're going to say, I mean, there was no guidance there. And there's been no guidance anywhere. And that to me is the sad part. There's been no leadership from them. And at this point, if you do what you think you're going to do by having the government come in, the government's going to say, why do we need the NCA? Let's get rid of them. We don't need them. We can, we'll, we'll govern it. We'll do it. And so I, I, I think that they're, you know, they've got to figure it out really, really fast. There is, I don't know if you know, but there's a real undertone that probably is going to happen. There's been talk about the top 40 programs in the country are going to just go off and do their own thing. And they're going to be with ESPN and they're just going to go off and do their thing. Alabama's Texas. And I do think there needs to be a financial list test because once you go down that road, you're done. You're, you're not coming back. 
And then the rest ends up just being college athletics, hopefully. And it goes back to what it should be. Um, but, you know, again, you know, you're talking about a billion, you know, how many billions of dollars, you know, started yesterday morning at 9 a.m. called the March Madness. There's a lot of money to be made out there. There's a lot of money that those guys make. So it's a it's an interesting question. I, I but I, I I do I find it interesting that the NCAA picks and chooses when they want to investigate, when they don't want to investigate and how they do things. I mean, we can use our own league. I mean, what was happening down at Arizona State? I mean, again, my stepson was at Penn State at the time. They didn't bring anybody in to bring for a recruiting trip. And down at Arizona State, they were bringing them in, bringing them hotels, paying for their, their plane tickets, the whole nine yards. And the NCAA is still investigating the thing. I'm pretty clear we're, we have it. We have the receipts. We've Scott, I got, two more, I got two more questions for you. And, and I remember in the 1988 vice presidential debate when Lloyd Benson said to Dan Quayle, you're no Jack Kennedy. Mark Emmer, you're no Zelensky. Okay, so, yeah. so uh, anyhow, you, you, I will never forget your, 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 your kind of stating that, you know, comparing Emmer's leadership to Zelensky's. I, I got kind of a kick out of that. But anyhow, Scott, here's my final two questions. I've been asking these two questions, I guess, since late 2019, completely out of the box compared to these issues of uh, some of the work you do, I guess, in some ways as a student uh, uh, counselor with, on, on athletic issues. Uh, my first question is, who's a living sports figure you love to interview? Could be a coach, general manager. Um, and who's a deceased sports figure in history you would have loved to interview, to interview to have a conversation with? Those are my final two questions for you today. Well, I'm a history major, so this is a great question for me. Okay. Um, probably present coach right now that's living, I would love to interview Coach Peterson. Just Chris I'd Peterson. Be, yeah, I love his values. I love what he okay. does. I believe what, 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 what he brings. And I does that be a coach? It can be a non-coach, just a living sports figure. Um, yeah. Well, he would be the one right now for me. Chris Peterson, great. great. Really and of, of a deceased one, I'd probably say um, Jesse Jones. I mean, Je Jesse, Jesse Jones. Um, Jesse Owens, Jesse uh, Owens, just because I would like to learn more about what it was going through the Olympic experience and things like that. I don't know if you saw this week, but uh, uh, um, a former O'Day athlete uh, Green uh, passed away. Uh, he was in the '68 Olympics. Uh, he got third in the 100, and he finished first in the in the relay. And so, uh, as a history major, I kind of like to do those things. But Jesse Owens would be one, just just to learn about kind of what it was like going in into Germany and doing those things and winning no doubt. and learning what it was felt like to go to look up into the stands and see Hitler and know what you did, what you did. I think it'd be very intriguing. I mean, there's so many, I mean, I could run hour back all of them. I mean, there's so many. I, Great I, I, names. I, Jesse Owens, his name has come up on my show. And I, I like, he mentioned Chris Peterson as a living sports figure. He'd love to interview. So, well, Scott, I really enjoyed our discussion on sports untold in the 114th edition. Thank you so much for doing this, Scott. You and I will be in touch. Sounds great. Thanks, Paul. Have a great day. You too. All the best. Thank you.